listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey everyone! So usually I start out talking about the episode's theme and do a short introduction of the guest. With this one though, I wrote and erased and wrote and erased. And by erased, I mean I hit the delete key a lot. It's not that this interview doesn't have a theme, because in reality, it has a lot of themes, including watching the love of your life die of cancer, being an only parent to a very young child who is grieving, navigating grief during a pandemic, and how the second year feels compared to the first. Spoiler, it doesn't magically feel better. Different, maybe. But my guest, Mira Simone, is the writer. And every time I try to put words to her story, they fell far short of her own. So instead, I'll just give the brief details and then let Mira tell you the rest. Also, in the show notes, you'll find links to all of Mira's published writings and to her Instagram, where she posts regularly about her grief. In the winter of 2019, Mira's husband Brian was diagnosed with stage 4 melanoma. He died seven weeks later. He was 41, Mira was 34, and Davida, their daughter, was about to turn three. When we hear that someone died of cancer, we often assume that they had lots of time to say goodbye, and that the death must have been a quote-unquote good one, that it wasn't traumatic. But that's not the reality for many, and definitely not for Mira or their daughter Davida. Mira describes Brian's death as sudden and traumatic, a death that left her in shock, struggling to make sense of what happened, of how Brian, who was always so strong and healthy, could really be gone. As Mira moved into the second year of grieving, she noticed that shock starting to wear off, and that in its place was the devastating awareness that this grief will just keep going, that Brian really wasn't coming back. Mira and I talk about so much in this interview, so much that it's almost twice as long as most of our episodes. So grab some water and get comfortable. Well, as comfortable as you can listening to a podcast about grief. Ready? Mira, thank you so much for making time to be on Grief Out Loud with me today. Thanks so much for having me. And, you know, we were joking a little as we were talking before we hit record about how I usually come into an interview with six, maybe seven questions ready to go. And (laughs) I looked at the page today, I have 14. So (laughs) listeners prepare, this might be a little longer episode than we usually do. I'm also a little bit of a talker. So (laughs) (laughs) there's that to consider too. (laughs) So I, I wanted to start with a concept that I was recently talking to a colleague, Alicia Alexander. She's a therapist who works specifically with families who are dealing with grief. And she was talking to me about this idea of of the love story and how important it can be for kids who have had someone in their life die to know the love story of maybe their parents or their family um, or parenting, anything like that. And, And just made me wonder, like, what is the love story that you share with your with your child, Davida, about you and your husband, Brian? Mm-hmm. So Davida is four years old right now. She was 
two, almost three when Brian died. So she was about two weeks shy of her third birthday when he passed away. A friend of mine actually reached out to me um, shortly after Brian died and wrote me this letter. And in the letter, she explained that her father had died when she was a child. And I didn't actually even know that. And she explained to me that at the time it wasn't talked about. The grief was just sort of swept under the rug and there was no, were no conversations about grief or about her father. And as a young adult, she was desperate for information about him and went around and tried asking people who had known him. And so much time had passed by then. A lot of the memories were murky or people still felt like it was too painful to talk about she told me this really early on and it kind of ignited something in me. And I realized as hard as it was for me to believe at that time and comprehend and accept, Davida probably was not going to have all of these really rich, detailed memories. I realized that this idea of her father, the love that they had between them, it was sort of my responsibility and my honor now to, to keep that alive, for me to act as that bridge in a way for her to maintain her connection to Brian. I also believe that she has her own spiritual connection with him, but I sort of see myself as her assistant in that way in terms of giving her that space and encouraging her to maintain that connection. I have definitely tried my best to you know, tell her about the love story between me and Brian, but also to encourage her to keep the love story alive between her and Brian. And, and that has, is sort of one of my main priorities in grief, to be perfectly honest, um, is to sort of help her maintain that connection and that love story. So of course, you know, we talk about the love story all the time. And Brian and I have this really beautiful love story, meeting, you know, synchronistically locking eyes across a dance floor. So it's this beautiful story. And she knows all of that. But we also just day to day, we talk about all the ways in which he was inserted into our lives in every way when he was alive in a more practical way. And Brian has these sort of things that he always said, these beautiful little statements that he would often repeat. And those have kind of become a part of our day to day life, but not just in a way of they've, I mean, in a certain way, they've become part of our life in just a very natural, like, I have started saying those things more, but also in a way where I point out, like, this is something that dad always said you know, as Dada always said, and now we say this now to sort of keep that, that love alive amongst us and between us and between her and him as well. It's kind of amazing to think that often, you know, maybe someone in your situation might go to the internet and do a search of like, how do I talk to my child about their father who has died? And you had someone with really specific lived experience of this is what it's like to not know and to have that be the inspiration for you to so intentionally continue to keep that conversation going and appreciating Mm -hmm. like there's the love story you and Brian had and the love story that Brian and Davida had and and helping her be able to carry on the narrative of both of those and then speaking of love a little more about love this is kind of a weird question so we'll just see (laughs) I love weird questions (laughs) But but in listening to uh, other conversations you've had with people and, and reading the writing that you've done, it, it seems like Brian loved you in such a specific, very Brian way. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering how has the way he loved you shaped how you're grieving his death? 
Mm-hmm. Such a good question. Brian loved me in a very Brian way. <laughs> um, the love that he gave me um, is a love that I have never received in my life from anybody else. And the way I think of the love is it was sort of like a no strings attached love. He he loved me without expectation that I would that I would provide anything for him or fulfill um, you know, a dream he had of what a partner would be. And uh, it's so, so unusual. It's so unusual to find love like that. And I know that love like that can also be taken advantage of. And I think that's why a lot of people do have expectations. And um, with us, it just worked. It worked really well. And I know that it was a, an intentional kind of love that he provided because he told me when he met me that he had he wanted to provide me with this kind of love. And I think that that has sort of, it's impacted the way that I grieve his death in so many ways. I mean, in, in one way, I, I really strive to provide Davida with that kind of love. And it's difficult to actually do and practice. And I strive to be more like that with everyone that I love. Um, but additionally, it's been, it's made grieving the loss of him so, so large and so overwhelming because it is a kind of love that I do not know if I will ever feel again from anybody else. And I, I know how unusual it is to be loved like that because so many people have reached out to me since he died and, and said something along the lines of, you know, what you experienced is the, a kind of love that so many people don't experience. And these are people in, in, in relationships, you know, with partners who they have chosen to be with and are acknowledging that what Brian and I had was a different kind of love. And that is hard. That's really been hard. And part of me grieving his death has also been accepting that that was one kind of love and that I may have another relationship in the future that will not be that exact kind of love and that that's okay. It has impacted my grief so much. And I'm thinking too about that process of being in it while Brian was alive and just experiencing it. And then after he dies, like reflecting on it and then it becoming so clear how mm-hmm. how unique or how special or how Brian-esque that, <laughs> love, <laughs> that love was. And Absolutely. Are there elements of, of him that you see coming through in Davida and her personality? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my gosh, so much. She is so much like him. There are moments when I feel such a strong connection to him through her. And I don't know if it's energetic or what it is, but one of the biggest ways that she is just so much like him is just being such a natural nurturer. Like he was such a nurturer at heart and he was so at peace and at home when he was uh, nurturing other people and it came out so much more when he became a father and she has that element of his personality in her so much and for her going through such a traumatic loss so early in life and having me as her mother who is you know so open about my grief and so open to emotions and to talking about emotions and feeling emotions i think that that has exaggerated that aspect of her personality and you know there was one one moment i remember you know very 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 shortly after brian's death and brian's death was very 
very traumatic because he had a very aggressive cancer that from from diagnosis until his death was less than seven weeks. So it was very traumatic because it just, it was everywhere and it just impacted his body and everything so much in such a short amount of time. And then he was just gone. And so, especially at the beginning, I was in complete shock. And I remember this one moment very early on when I just, there was this one morning when I just couldn't get out of bed and she had just turned three. She just came and lay with me in bed and she put her face right in front of my face. So we were like touching noses. She was just like, close your eyes, mama. It's okay. And just lay there with me for like an hour. It was so Brian. And then in other, you know, less intense, griefy ways. She (laughs) has also just, she has his, he was very unconventional, very outside the box. He had this very brilliant mind that just thought in this very unique and different way. And she absolutely has that too. Um, He was an exceptionally, exceptionally creative person. And she is also, and just, they both just are the kind of people that march to the beat of their own drum. It's about being your own unique person. And some people are just intrinsically like that. And they both are. For me as a parent now of her on my own, it's like trying to honor that and allow that to flourish and figure out that balance of navigating the world while allowing that part of her personality to blossom has been a huge part of grief as well for me. Um, there are so many ways that they're similar, but those are sort of like the big ones that really jump out when I hear that question. What are some of the ways that grief shows up for Davida? Like, how do you see it in her? Because we get so many questions from parents in a similar situation where a kiddo is so young when, when their parent dies and like, what is their grief going to look like? And, and what kind of support is she needing from you? Yeah, I get this question all the time as well, because I write so much about Davida and about her grief and about the way that we're trying to navigate her grief. So it's something that I I am asked a lot. And I always like to preface my answer by saying that I am in no way a grief expert or know anything about childhood grief aside from my own experience and my own reading and my own intuition. (laughs) So I just like to sort of say that at the beginning, because I know that there's so many people out there who are like actual (laughs) children's grief experts. But having said that, I do have a lot of opinions about it. And I do feel like it is an area that there is not enough information about and a lot of misinformation. And so the number one thing that I think is a mistake that a lot of people just in general make when thinking about childhood grief is underestimating the impact for a child because they're not old enough to verbalize or to express grief in a way that we as adults understand. And if you look back through history, it wasn't so long ago when childhood grief was completely ignored, as if it didn't exist, as if children don't grieve at all. So it's no wonder that there's still so much misinformation out there and so, and, and so many people who are just like, uh, I, I don't know. And so I follow my intuition and we also have a really good um, grief therapist who works with Davida, who has given me not so many, to be honest, not really so many pointers, but more has just been like, yes, you're on the right track. Like Mm. what your intuition is telling you is right. The way that grief shows up for her is, I mean, in so many ways. So 
I think that when a child goes through such a traumatic loss as losing one of their two main caregivers and every father of course is important, but Brian specifically for Davida, he was a primary caregiver. So we were both working parents and we were both stay at home parents. He was a very involved father. Two days a week, he was her primary caregiver. And they had this unique thing between them that I was not part of. Like when I would go off and go to work, they had their own stuff that they did that was their own special data Davida stuff. And so, I mean, just that's just painting a bit of a context um, of how huge this loss was for her. And then also, I think just because she was at an age when she didn't understand yet that death could happen. We hadn't ever really talked about death. And she knew her grandfather died when she was a little baby. And so she understood kind of in that way, but we hadn't really explored it that much. And because he got sick and died so quickly, and it was like shock, shock, shock. I was in full on caregiver mode. She was basically being cared for by other people the whole time he was sick. There was no time to kind of prep. So it was a huge traumatic loss for her. That's sort of just, just to preface the way that the loss has sort of manifested for her with that context. And I think that with a loss that large for a child, and definitely I can speak to our, our situation, I believe that it affects everything. So I don't think that there's anything in her life at any point in any moment of the day that isn't impacted by grief. And I don't think that that's a sad statement and it may seem like an exaggeration to some people, but I just think that it is part of the, the loss of Brian is part of the fabric of her life. So everything that happens, anything that she experiences is filtered through that lens because it's such a huge, huge part of her life. And I think a lot of people shy away from accepting that with children because it seems so scary and so sad and kids are so sweet and so beautiful and all we want is for them to be okay and happy and normal but i just from the beginning had this very strong feeling that nope this loss is going to impact everything we have to dive into this and accept this and so everything that happens every way that she experiences something i'm always thinking of it through the lens of okay you know this is in part, along with many other factors, this is in part influenced by the fact that her dad died really suddenly and really traumatically and that he's not here. When, so back to your initial question of how you know, her grief shows up, I think it shows up in every single way that she is in her personality, at least in part. And then there's certain ways, certain experiences or certain parts of her personality where I feel like, okay, grief is like the major factor here. And then there's other things where I feel like, okay, grief is a piece of it, but then there's all these other pieces too. And people are always like, well, how do you know? This is the question that I get the most. And I'm sure you've heard this question so many times as well. But people ask me this question all the time. How do I know if it's grief or normal childhood behavior? And I always say like, you have a normal grieving child. (laughs) Everything. Exactly. Thank so you. thank you. I'm just going to send them this clip and then <laughs> you can answer it for me. <laughs> okay. So um, as a non-grief expert, my answer is that everything is impacted by her grief. And 
it's not important. It doesn't matter what parts of her personality are here because they would have been here anyways, and what parts of her personality are here because Brian died. It doesn't matter because Brian died. <laughs> so now this is her personality and this is her, this is her experience and this is who she is and this is the filter and the life that we're working with. So it's all we have to work with. And it doesn't matter to, to sift through the tangle of it all and say, okay, well, the, well, you know, she was already kind of attached to me. So really she's just that kind of kid who's really attached to their mom. So it doesn't matter that Brian died because that was already going to be her personality. Like for Davida, part of that piece of her wanting to be near me and feeling attached to me is that her primary caregiver died traumatically and that impacts her attachment to me. It just does. And that will be a, that's a part of it. That's just a piece of it. It doesn't mean that she's going to be, you know, messed up for life or anything like that. It just means that it is a piece of her story. And that for me, I just think it needs to be taken into consideration. So everything that happens, you know, her, she has very big emotions. So that's sort of one way that you could say her grief comes through. She has very big emotions. From what I can see, it seems like she has bigger emotions than other kids. Is that because of who she is? Is that because Brian died? It's probably a combination of those two things. She also has a lot of questions about spirituality and about death and about illness that other kids that haven't been exposed to that kind of thing probably don't have. That's another way her grief comes up. So I think that there are a number of ways, but just overall, I think it's just who she is, is a kid who has been through a traumatic loss and she's also all these other things as well. And it's a, it's a piece of the puzzle. And sometimes it's a really big piece and sometimes it's a smaller piece. The biggest thing I try to remember is that I just have to honor that grief and remember that kids grieve. And Mira, you mentioned that she asks a lot of questions and some of them are pretty, pretty deep and spiritual and, and sort of existential in nature. Is there an example of a question she's asked recently that you were like, whew, it's going to take me a bit to figure out how to answer this one. <laughs> she asks a lot about Brian's spirit. And she asks a lot of questions about how he knows where we are. Because she, she connects to him and she says that she, that she talks to him. She can hear his footsteps. She sees him watching her at night and things like that. So sometimes she'll ask me questions about if we move or if we're traveling, will he know where to find us? Or if we're in the car, how will he know where we're going? So that's kind of a big one for her is just wanting to make sure that if we're not at home, that he knows where we are. How do you answer that for her? Oh, I tell her that he knows because when you, when you connect with your hearts and with your spirits, it doesn't matter where you are in the world because the love shows where you are. And so no matter where we are, our love will keep us connected. But I mean, everybody I think who has gone through a big grief knows that, that feeling where the places that you have really strong memories with a person can definitely make their spirits feel alive. And so I understand what she's saying, because when, we, when we're when we at home, which is where we spent so much of our time with him, there are 
you know, there are physical items that are placed that he put there. His energy was the energy that put that thing there. So of course we feel more connected to him when we're in a place where we have so many memories of him. So I understand what she's saying. And I think it's sort of, as humans, we're always going back and forth between the physical and the spiritual and attempting to find some sort of way of connecting those two realities. And so I think that her questions are sort of just part of that, that quest that so many humans are on. Um, so I, I love when she asks questions like that because it just opens up so many more conversations about so many other big issues. I'm picturing it as like love has a GPS and it never loses its signal, but there are some places where the signal is a little stronger than others. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You've also written and talked about the night that Brian died and you know, how much you were at the hospital and, and you brought things from home and you tried to create this really sort of like magical supportive space and place for him on the night that he died and how it reminded you also of giving birth, those sort of liminal spaces of transition. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what are the kind of commonalities or similarities you, you've thought about in terms of giving birth and, and someone dying. That was something that I realized when he was dying, it came to me. And I mean, I think part of it is that there wasn't that much of a, there wasn't a big chunk of time for me between the experience of giving birth and the experience of Brian dying. It was just under three years. So the birth was still very recent for me. And I think because of that, the comparisons really came they came to me very strongly. And also because Brian's father passed away when Davida was only four months old. And I had that same feeling when he was dying and it had been so recent at that point. So, I mean, I just, it was glaringly obvious to me at that point. Both of them to me were these, it, it's like ha you're half in the physical and then you're half connected to elsewhere time just sort of seems to stop or change. There are also these similar, even just the rhythm of birth and death is so similar in terms of both of them, uh, it will speed up and then it will slow down and then speed up and then slow down. And it's this similar sort of feeling where you aren't sort of part of the regular pace of the world for a time. So in my birth, my contractions would speed up and we'd think, okay, things are moving along and then they would really slow down and there'd be sort of a lull and then they'd speed up and then slow down. And when Brian was dying, it was the same sort of thing where things would seem to be moving really quickly and it was like, okay, I feel like he's, I can feel that he's moving forward on this journey and it seems like he's close to leaving his body and then he would like be right back in there. And he'd just open his eyes and be like talking to me about, you know, reminding me to drink lemon water in the morning or whatever he was, you know, his Brian things. And then, and then he'd be back in that other space again and then back. So it was that similar sort of rhythm that felt very similar to my birth of Davida. And then just overwhelmingly this sense of connection to a greater a greater something, I don't even know, but 
I mean, when I was in labor, I felt like the universe opened up or it's something. And it's like connecting to what, whatever is beyond this life. And the same when Brian died, I felt that same exact connection. And I think there was something really comforting in the fact that I recognized that similarity because it helped me. I mean, of course, oh my gosh, I was like beyond devastated when Brian died, but there was that sort of something that anchored me to um, this feeling of that was so similar to Davida's birth that made it feel somehow more cyclical and more, I, I don't even know what word to use because it's not like it made it okay. And it's not like it made me, you know, accept that he died and that's fine or anything like that. It was just something beyond, it was some sort of strand of something that I could hold on to. And I don't even know, it, I don't know even what it is, but it was something that felt beyond just this is a tragedy and my life is over and I'm going to be depressed for the rest of my life because who can get past something, a loss like this? Like it was some sort of strand that allowed me to like feel something greater than, than the, the devastation of his physical body dying. Yeah. I can, I can totally see how it's hard to find the words for that because as you're talking, I'm thinking like, Oh, there's like a connection or like it's normal, but not, you know? And so just that idea, like this is part of the rhythm of, of what happens in this world. And I'm not okay with, I'm participating in that. My, my life is being a part of this rhythm right now, you know, like how to hold both of those things at the same time. And I think that that to me is sort of part of the bigger question of, or the bigger Oh gosh, language escapes me, but it's, it's, it's the, the bigger questions or the bigger learnings or the bigger things about grief in general. It's just that balance between feeling that connection and knowing, okay, this is, we are part of something larger. This is not just, just devastation and just a physical death. And this is so horrible. And I'm going to let myself really feel how horrible this is because I don't want to take that easy way out of just saying, oh, well, you know, it was meant to be, or everything happens for a reason, like, uh, or this sort of toxic positivity of like, I'm going to be stronger than ever and better than ever now because I went through this horrible thing and I've gotten through it. Like I've really tried to avoid that while also holding on to those strands of like what I felt to be true, which is that this was a sacred experience giving birth and Brian's death really felt like a deep connection to the natural world as well, because they were situations where I felt like this is the natural rhythm of life. You can't rush these things. You can't force these things. They happen in their own time. And there's something about letting go and allowing things to unfold in their own time as they're meant to that were big lessons for me in both my my birth with Davida, which was very a very long labor, and Brian's death, which also felt like a very long extended amount of time, even though it was it wasn't actually, but like the, that final week, once we knew that he was dying, because we only knew he was dying for like six days before he died, but it felt like those six days were went on forever, you know, and it was just it was all on his own his own time. So there was something about that too, of surrendering to the natural world, which felt also like a similarity. 
And going a little bit further with this idea of time and grief, you, you're a few months past the first year anniversary of Brian's death. And I'm actually almost at a year and a half. Almost a year and a half. On the 26th, we're going to be at a year and a half, which is so hard to believe. Yeah. And we always talk, we talk a lot in our groups about the sort of the time warp of grief. And, and a lot of people talk about like, whoa, the second year somehow feels harder than the first year. How is this possible? And I know that's not true across the board for everyone, but just wondering, like, what are you noticing for yourself of having moved into that second year of grief? So the first year for me, I think was a lot of shock and a lot of survival. I can only speak from my own experience and we had such a short, it was such a short, traumatic, aggressive illness that, you know, destroyed Brian's body. And he was a very strong, very vibrant, very healthy person. So it was a very big shock. And that first year I was, I mean, looking back now, I was in so much shock. And I think that my body and my mind did that to protect me. And I had a very strong feeling from the beginning that I needed to be there for Davida and focus on her grief. And a lot of my energy went into that. And I had so many physical manifestations of of um, shock and, you know, all the things of like not being able to eat and not being able to sleep. And my nervous system was so dysregulated. And I just felt like I couldn't socialize. So for the first year, I, I mean, there, I still have friends that I haven't seen since Brian died or that I've maybe seen a few times. And part of that is that, of course, the pandemic hit just before our one year mark. So even though I now feel a little it's a little more easeful for me to socialize. That's of course been a challenge for other reasons now, but sort of that first year, those were the main things. And I initially told myself I'd give myself a year to do whatever I wanted to do and, and just be whoever I needed to be. And I thought that by the end of the first year, I would be okay. And that's what I told myself. The one year hit and the pandemic hit at almost the exact same time. And I very quickly realized that that one year thing is BS. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't magically okay. <laughs> I was not magically okay. I would say that the first few months after the one year mark were some of the hardest months for me. And part of that was that shock wearing off. I don't even know how to properly explain this because it sounds ridiculous when I say it, but it was, it was like I realized that Brian wasn't coming back ever. And I, it, sounds, it sounds weird to say because of, of course I know that death means somebody isn't coming back. But I think when there's so much shock, you really go into survival mode and you're just like, I just have to get through today. I just have to get through this month. I just have to get through the first year. And you think, because we're told our whole lives, you think that you will be okay after a year. And you think that it will magically somehow be better. I've never been through something like this. I don't know. I thought maybe, maybe that's true, you know? Like, and, but I told myself that and it was like a lifeline. And then there was this huge, it was like the ground opened up underneath me again when I realized, 
oh, actually, he's still gone and he's not ever going to come back. This isn't just something to get through. This is forever. This is my life now forever. Because with so many things in our life, other than loss, it can be a hard time and then you get through it or you go through something difficult, but then you you figure something else out or something else comes up. But with this, I was just like, no, this is never going to go away. He's always going to be dead. It was like that realization hit me and it was like a, a ton of bricks and it was without the shock cover being there anymore. And I went through a really, really low, 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 low point exacerbated by the pandemic the first few months after the one year. And it was like working through that next layer. I feel like now things are feeling a bit more manageable again in this moment, but I totally understand why people say the second year is harder. Like I, I completely understand that. And also, I mean, you, you cannot answer this question without, without the obvious. I mean, it, to me, it seems obvious, but I feel like it needs to be said that so much of the support goes away. And it's not that people don't love you. And it's not that people don't care. It's that a, we all live in part in the society where we've all been fed this nonsense about grief only lasting for a certain amount of time. And so we all have that unconsciously run, running under the surface for us. And number two, I think with something so shocking and traumatic as Brian's death, I mean, it sent so many shockwaves through our entire community. People were like, what, Brian? Because he was just this like super healthy, vibrant, person. He was a musician. He was like always around, like everyone in our neighborhood knew him. He was super tall. So everyone's like, oh, that really tall, smiley guy. Like people just remember him and know him. And it was like, holy crap, if that could happen to someone like that, like it was really scary for a lot of people. So we had a lot of people right away being like, oh my God, what can I do for you? Can I do this? Can I do that? But then it kind of, you know, just fades into the background for a lot of people. And so that's a huge part of why the second year I think is harder as well. As I was listening to you, I was thinking about the idea that when someone first dies, they're gone right now. What do I need to do to survive? They're gone right now. And then that that one year or whatever day it ends up being, it's never like officially 365 days later, it sinks in like they're gone right now and they're going to always be gone. Mm -hmm. And now, now what? Like, what does that mean for my life of not just surviving because I've gotten through this first year, I survived what do I do with the rest of my life? And they're still not going to be here. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just thinking about that. And I really appreciate what you said about like the shock wearing off. It's almost, I had to go to the dentist this week and like the Novocaine numbs everything. You know, something horrible is happening because there's a lot of noises and there's metal in your <laughs> mouth and you're like, this is bad, but I can't feel it. And then the Novocaine wears off and you're like, oh, now I can feel it and I can remember what was happening. And now yeah. I understand why I'm having the sensations that I'm having. Yeah. So, so Mira, I told you I had a bunch of questions for you, but I snuck one in from someone else, if you're ready <laughs> okay. for that. Okay. So, <laughs> so my friend Michelle, who was married to my friend Aiden, and Aiden died, uh, it'll be a year ago at the end of October, she died of brain cancer, and they have a small child as well. So very similar situations. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I told Michelle I was going to interview you, she all exclamation points was like, I love her. I read everything she writes. She articulates what I'm feeling so well. And so she wanted me to pass on her gratitude to you. Mm -hmm. And, and you. I said, well, what would you most want to ask Mira if you could ask her? And she was talking about for her, like 
you know, the world's in this weirdo semi shutdown space where, you know, people are, are talking about grief so much, like grieving the loss of their daily routine, grieving the loss of people dying from the pandemic, grieving the loss of people who have died that they haven't been able to see because of the restrictions of COVID. And, and so grief is being talked about for everything right now. And she was just wondering what that's been like for you to be carrying this, you know, crater of personal grief into a world now that is talking about it and using that word so much more. Oh gosh, there are so many, there are so many things. And I, so this is something that I have thought a lot about and that I feel like my, what I believe and what I think is still, is still very much in process. So I'm going to answer the question, but I also feel like it has changed already my answer to this question. And I think it will continue to change. So there are so many different parts though. When COVID first hit, I, my first reaction was very self-centered. Like I was, I was very much like, oh my goodness, are you serious? Like everybody is talking about grief now, shut up. Like I was, it was like, just to be perfectly honest, like I was just like, and all of a sudden it felt like before I had all of these people that were, this is going to be a very selfish answer, by the way. My, my first reaction was just very selfish. And I think grief is very selfish in a lot of ways and needs to be very selfish in a lot of ways. And if we lived in a more grief literate society, there would be more support and that is what is needed. So that's just sort of my belief. But um, my initial reaction was very selfish where I was like, I had all these friends who were all of a sudden talking about grief and all of a sudden were trying to relate to my experience as if we were all in the same situation. And I don't know, I've seen this said a lot about the pandemic. And I, I think this is true where, you know, it was the statement at first of we're all in this together. But um, then other people are coming up and saying, yeah, you know, we're all in the same, we're all in this together, sure, but we're not all in the same situation. We're not all, it, it is affecting us all in very different ways. And I think that that as the pandemic goes on, conversations like that are coming up more. And that is very true. And that was sort of what initially hit me. We're not all in this together. The way that this is impacting me as an only parent already in deep grief for something, it's not the same as somebody in a two-person household where this is is an inconvenience. This is scary in terms of we're all wondering what's going to happen with the world. We're all scared about what's going to happen with the world. But it's not, I mean, it felt like don't use my word. Like, this is my word. That's how it felt, just to be perfectly honest. Like, that's how it felt at the beginning. And that has changed a lot as the pandemic has gone on. And I think that there is more of an openness around, okay, this is affecting everybody really differently. And I think it's really important to know that. And also, I feel like having an understanding of grief the way that I do and writing about grief, it is more important now because more people are grieving. So it's like once I get out of my own head in that way and and grief is not a comparison, it shouldn't be a comparison, just the concept of grief and writing about grief, which is what I do, is more important now on a world scale than it ever was. And it's not just the pandemic. The pandemic is a huge part of it, but there's also climate grief, which I think is a huge thing. And I think it's becoming more of a thing. I mean, I have friends in California right now who have been evacuated from their home for 19 days. They don't even know if it's standing. As time goes on, if we continue along the path that we're on, climate grief is gonna be another 
huge, huge issue. And so I think just having a conversation about grief in general is becoming more important, both on a personal scale and on a global scale. And so I'm trying now to sort of look at it that way and look at it as, okay, maybe these conversations around grief are going to have an even larger impact and are going to be even more important as time goes on, rather than feeling, I almost at the beginning, it was like I felt protective of my grief. Like, this is my grief. What do you mean now we're all in a level playing field because of this pandemic? No, no. Like, you still have your person, you know? And also, I think the pandemic exaggerates that, especially at the beginning, because it was just like, shelter at home, you're only with your, your people and with everybody complaining about how annoying their partners were and how hard it was living in close proximity. Like those conversations were just like devastating for me to hear. Like I was just like, oh my gosh, like I have to hear one more person talk about how sick they are of their person. It felt like such a punch in the gut to me because I was just like, I would do anything for one more day and you're complaining that you're in lockdown with your, the person who loves you and supports you more than anybody else. It was so hard to stomach. It, yeah, it was, there's so many different elements and I, I, I still feel like my answer to this question is quite jumbled because I think things are changing um, and developing more and more, but sort of that's the best I can do at this point. <laughs> well, and I think it speaks to in terms of like, we're all in this together. And it's like, but wait, like the pandemic is differentially affecting communities of color. Economic devastation is differentially affecting people who had, you know, were already in very tenuous economic situations. And I think about, you've talked and written about like how how important it is to you to make sure that there is time and space for grief and to not gloss over the hard parts and to not rush through anything. And what's currently helping you right now? Well, overall, my number one thing that helps me with grief is writing. So still, like from the beginning, that's been the one sort of common thread that's gone through my whole grief process has been when I feel emotion that doesn't know where to go. That's how I filter it and process it and move it through me is through writing. And that continues to sort of be the main way that I'm able to process my grief. So that's number one. Number two, um, another thing that really helps me is being in nature. I've tried to spend as much time as I can um, having a bit more of a simple lifestyle, slowing down, getting out of the city when I can. And that has been so helpful as well. And then number three is just really spending time with Davida, like the two of us, the two of us together, it feels like that because we, that was our, that's our family. And we, the two of us, like with Brian, that we were, that was our, that was our life. And so when the two of us are together, that's, the most important thing to me. And that's what makes me feel the most connected to Brian. And I'm able to sort of channel my love for him towards her and through her. And it makes me feel closer to him and closer to the life that we had together. So uh, yeah, that's, those are the things that from the beginning have helped me and, and continue to really help me. I'm appreciating that as grief evolves, there's still these three 
anchors that you have that come along, no matter how grief is changing or shifting and nature writing and spending time with Davida, your, your daughter. Yeah. So I know lots of writing, which is an amazing contribution to others. So just feeling really grateful for the way you've been so outspoken about your grief and knowing that it's making a difference for so many other people out there who read your writing and for our listeners who aren't familiar with your writing, how can they best connect with you? So far, it's through Instagram. Um, so my Instagram is New Moon Mira, and that's still primarily where I post and share most of my writing. And in the link in Instagram is a link to all of my published pieces as well. And I'm in the process of well, I shouldn't say that. I have been wanting to start a website slash blog for a long time and just have not had the energy or the motivation to do so, but that is a goal of mine as well. So hopefully I will have, my, my website is going to be mirasimone.com when it is up and running. And I hope that, especially now with this writing grant, I'll be able to do that. And then hopefully I'll have more of my writing there and won't have to only write on Instagram. But so far that's where I've been writing just because it was there and it was available and it required, you know, no extra effort. So that's where people can find most of my writing right now. Great. Well, listeners, I put all of that in the show notes and now it's been officially stated your website will exist. So we'll look forward to it being available. Hopefully sooner rather than later. So Mira, thank you again for making time to talk with me. I feel like we could talk a whole other hour, um, but we got to wrap it up right now. But I really appreciate getting to know you a little bit more and to hear more about Brian and Davida and just the container you have created for her and her grief while also attending to yours. So just thank you for sharing about that with me and with our listeners today. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be speaking on this podcast. So thank you for inviting me on. And listeners out there, I know I say it every single time, but thank you for tuning in and for being part of our community. If you know anyone who uh, might benefit from hearing the show, please share it with them. And if you want to reach out to me to let me know what the show means to you, you can reach me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. You can also go to our website, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G forward slash grief out loud. If you want to learn more about the Dougie Center, the work that we do, or if you're feeling drawn to support us and the show in any way. So thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>